I was taking a road trip and that's when I get a chance to listen to music. I used to drive a lot when I was younger and I always just had different albums in and stuff. And I had popped in, you know, Seal. And I was thinking like, man, I like, he's pretty soulful. And I just remembered all the songs. They just kind of, you know, rushed back to me. And I was really tripping about how much I really liked those albums. And I forgot, you know, how much they kind of meant to me and how it kind of got me through. And it's funny how music is kind of like that, how it could be your everything. And then sometimes it just kind of like, uh, you know, like a good friend, they kind of disappear out of your life. And then sometimes they come back and you be like, oh yeah, and then all the memories flood back. And so it just had me thinking about like soul music in, in general. And then you came to mind, just your insight and stuff, just cause you know, your love for it, your artist yourself as well. And I thought it'd be an interesting conversation to talk about. And I think I have a clearer understanding of what I want to ask in my head. So I will do my best to ask the questions, you know, in a way that makes sense. I kind of like wonder, like, you know, when you talk about like soul music, well, first of all, let me say good evening to you. Tonight I'm with Kelvin Michaels. He is a YouTuber. I would say he's a man of the community. He is a tastemaker. He's a musician, a music artist and all that. And he's somebody that I really appreciate his opinion. And I always look forward to his insights on things from politics to music and, and things that's going on today. And so I'm happy to to have you tonight. How are you doing, Kelvin? All good. But yeah, man. So yeah, I was thinking about soul music and then all the stuff that comes along with that. I was thinking like, first of all, what's considered like soul music? When I was listening to Seal, I was thinking like, he's very soulful. And I was thinking about other people like, like Desiree and Macy Gray and, you know, Amani Coppola, um, Chris Summer, just different people, like even like um, Lenny Kravis, just all these different people that's soulful, but they're not considered necessarily soul singers. They're, they're kind of like considered like rock or alternative and stuff. And I noticed like it'd be like droughts we have on the side of like, you know, R&B and soul music, even though we might think, okay, like the, the usual suspects didn't put out an album, like Johnny Gill didn't put out an album. And I think in certain years, different genre of music does real good. Like in the, maybe like the early, early 90s and stuff like that, 89, 90, 91, I would say like, I, I love like hip hop and I love like R&B with the new Jack swing and all that kind of stuff. I love those sounds. And then like in the late 90s, I think that was the time for alternative rock and stuff. So you had like Third Eye Blind and Blind Melon. You had, you know, just different kind of music, different kind of genres. And I think everybody just have their, their moment in time of just having strong, free, expressive kind of music and it's just like okay so i'm just off of you know hip-hop right now because it's going through something i'm just listening to r&b and i'm off r&b right now listen to alternative rock let me switch over to here so everybody kind of have their moment and it's funny that when it seemed like there's a lull with r&b and like soul music i was thinking about it i was like well i was getting my fix even though it's considered alternative rock or some other kind of genre i was still kind of getting it through those artists like seal Cause when I think of like, where, where did the soul music go? I kind of think it was always around, but I think that the presentation is probably a little bit different. And so it was maybe overlooked or not considered like soul music, even though if you listen to it, cause like Seal had a song called Crazy. And he was saying stuff about like, for us not to even think that we can fly, like, isn't that crazy? You know, thinking that we can't be more than we are. And that's almost like the plight of, you know, African-Americans is like what we think is what we get. And he's kind of saying outside of that, isn't it crazy that you don't think that you could fly or even try to fly? That's the crazy part. Not the fact that you can't, but the fact that you don't even think that you can. 
And then he later on, he did an album where he did a song called Human Beings, basically a story about Tupac and Biggie's death. And, and I remember finding out that later. And I thought, that's interesting that he, like, I wouldn't even think that they would be on Seal's radar. You would think that'd be a whole different pool. And how would he know about Biggie and Tupac? And he mentioned it years later in the interview. And I thought that was so cool because back then it could be a country singer that maybe saw, you know, Tupac in an elevator. He'd be talking about, yeah, Tupac was my friend. I dedicate this song to Tupac, you know, and, and Seal could have easily leaned in and said, this is my dedication to Biggie and Tupac and the senselessness of their death and how they are human beings. They are not objects. They are not thugs. They are human beings, you know, just kind of breaking it down to the truth. And I thought that was such a big statement and he didn't even use it. I've seen people use less for more. And I thought it was kind of neat how he was touching and saying stuff that was about us for us. But um, I don't think most people would categorize him as for us or music for us, meaning like soulful music or black music. I'm sorry, that was a long winded statement. <laughs> Get it all out. No, no, he's putting it all in the context. That's all. Um, I think for at least in the last 20 years, because the industry shifted, I really think the fact that revenue went down, labels focus mainly on what I call just the ear candy artists, the pop artists that could generate fast money really, really quick. Because I think the reason why we had so many seals and um, Michelle, I can never say her last name right. But Indigachello. Like, I think the reason why we had so many of them early on was at the time that a lot of them emerged, labels were willing to invest in their marketing because the industry wasn't pretty much one step from bankrupt. So they had money to kind of toss around. As you got into that digital slash streaming area that we're in now and where, you know, the money's not coming in in the same realm, they've cut back on what they're going to invest in. And it seems like right now, if you're not an ear candy artist or a hip hop artist, you kind of out of luck. Because even if you look at like some of the bigger acts from even just 10 years ago, like Katy Perry, when she was still, you know, a bigger star, when you look at the lyrical content of a lot of her material, there's some stuff that's a little deeper, but a lot of it is, I don't want to be rude, but it's like fluff. But it, the melodies are so good and so catchy that her stuff is perfect for radio and she gets all of these monster hits that can carry on and carry on. And I think the labels decided that's kind of the route they want to go. They want to latch on to what's going to pull in a fast audience because I think there is a generational divide with how we consume music. Older audiences tend to still at some point usually maybe purchase and still use iTunes at least, maybe yeah. still buy CDs. The kids specifically only stream. And so labels have not really been successful at getting a lot of the season acts into the streaming platforms where people really stream their stuff. Like when you look at a lot of the seasoned act, their streaming numbers are not very good, but that's because we have their albums. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think when it came to that, yeah, they just decided they're not going to invest the same that they did 20 years ago into a, pretty much that realm. And so artists that do make soulful music they get put into the urban division at the label and you know they might get some radio play on the urban ac formats and that's their marketing other than that they're on tour i think the structure of the industry plays a role in that it just changed everything again you know the people up top said well this is what we're going to put the money on and so you kind of have seen almost a decline because I, I do feel like like you said earlier like you go to about like 97 98 99 2000 maybe even 2001 there are a lot of people that weren't technically considered traditional artists that were very successful, like Macy Gray's a perfect example. Um, I oh, remember the time I saw her first single, the, was it Get Up and Get Out and Get Something Like That. Yeah. I remember seeing it on MTV as a kid. I was like, okay, this is different. Let me yeah. see how it does. But I mean, and this is at the same time, Ricky Martin is living La Vida Loca and right. TLC was back out. There's all these big monster acts that were doing everything. And she still was able to 
have her own lane and still go double platinum. So right. it was kind of like, was a period where everybody could eat. And so even if you didn't have the machine spoon feeding you saying, this is what you have to listen to, I think there was still enough investment where artists that don't fit the mold of what I say is ear candy or what's the trend still had an opportunity to, you know, build an audience. Yeah, that makes sense. But also I was kind of wondering about this, the part of like the category those artists like that was put into. Like they like they wasn't necessarily labeled as necessarily like soul music necessarily. Like like I said, like Macy Gray, like Seal, like uh, Michelle Indigacello. I know she did that Wild Nights with uh, John Kruger Mellencamp. That was her kind of like her introduction. But like I said, they wasn't really put in the same categories as them. Like they wouldn't even wouldn't have even had done concerts with their contemporaries necessarily. And with that, I think. Like if you go to their their shows, you wouldn't necessarily see a, a lot of black folks there. And I'm curious as to why that might be. MTV generation type thing. Because it seems like once we got into the MTV era, it seems like black artists were only in two categories. You either hip hop or R&B. Okay, I consider somebody like Whitney Houston and even a Janet, they get the best of both worlds in R&B. Yes. Pop, they can kind of fit comfortably in either category. But right. I feel like, most likely you only put black artists in like three boxes. And so before the era of MTV, like when you look at what was happening with music in the seventies and sixties, there were a lot of black artists who I think, you know, there are so many sounds like you could say there's the whole Motown thing that was happening, but then you also had other, like a free to pain in my opinion was very left field from kind of the more so, and I don't want to say Motown was ear candy, but the machine knew what they were doing. They knew what kind right. of songs they put out, you know, yeah. so a free to pain was very different from a Motown which was very different from, you know, like a Johnny Taylor. Like, I just think there were so many different categories that we, and, and it all kind of fell into a bubble of being soul because there was kind of this association where if you were just black, you were soulful, no if hands or butt. Yeah. And then I think as we got into the later eras, especially as MTV became a thing in music videos and they started doing the more categories, for black artists, it was kind of like, okay, we've now accepted that if you're a black artist, the only thing you can do is specifically this, you know, contemporary R&B or hip hop or kind of the Whitney Janet route of best of both worlds. Otherwise, we're going to put you in a, some other weird box. And so that's why all of them got put in alternative boxes, because I think somebody like a Macy Gray or some of these other people would have been considered soul artists in the 70s. But they, they go to the alternative box. Lenny Kravitz as well. It was so interesting. I was watching some interview. It was talking about the... Um, I think it was called the 1999 tour. I think it was that tour, but it was talking about Morris Day in the Time and yeah. Prince being on the same ticket and how this is when Prince is in little red Corvette mode. And so, you know, he's doing his wonderful Prince thing, but, you know, you just had Morris Day in the Time up there doing 777, 93, 11, and right. all the chocolate and all the stuff that's going to get everybody jumping. Right. And then you shift over to Prince, who's in this other space where they, they put it as rock and roll or put it as pop. But I was like, I still think even that was still technically soulful. It just was a different element. I think... Yeah industry limited and put soul as just kind of a one-size-fits-all approach and didn't realize there's different layers to all of it because you know they say okay james brown is the godfather of soul and aretha is the queen of soul but i think with soul music there's so many layers because look at how different aretha and, and james brown are yeah. very different so i think soul as we got into the later years they started putting all the artists in compartments and then you kind of started seeing the category of just r&b soul where now you can be, because now that definition of R&B soul is more like a lettuce or pretty much the neo soul acts. And right. so other acts, like you said, like a Lady Kravitz or, or a Seal or somebody, they don't fit that specific mold because their sound is a little bit more expansive. And so that's why I think they just throw them in like the alternative bubble. 
Um, and I think that plays a role as to why their audiences tend to be a little less black at the shows because they were presented through the industry and through the media as, okay, these are alternative. Like even MTV used to do like Buzzworthy. Most of those acts had a Buzzworthy sign on their video. Seals right. a little bit so he was out before then. Or even, um, what's, it's a rock group. The guy just died a few years back. Um, it's this black rock group. They covered Prince's 17 Days at one point. Talking about Living Color. Living Color, yes. Okay. Um, but even them. I think a lot of the stuff they had was technically soulful, even though it was rock music. There was some yeah. elements where they jumped into a bit of everything, but they would never be considered that by the time we got to the MTV era. They were considered just, okay, alternative or rock. And then again, you go back to those 70s, a lot of the stuff that something like Parliament and the Funkadelics or Bootsy Collins or all of those different groups were doing then, they kind of dipped and dabbed in everything. And the reason we called it soul was because it was supposed to just represent what was from the heart. There was no distinctive yeah. sound as to how yeah. to define it. And so once, the business model became a thing and it was about the money okay well how do, how do we compartmentalize these folks and you know that way we can divide up the pie for who gets marketed to what so i think that's where we lost you know what used to be and it became more about just the business that makes sense i was kind of wondering because it's kind of like they were still talking to us they were just talking to a different audience it's, I won't say it's the exact same thing, but it kind of reminds me of how like hip hop acts have like a mostly a white audience and, you know, and they're talking about the plight of people that looks like them. And so I thought it was just kind of interesting. So in situations where you do have these folks that are soul singers, how do you, how do they get, you know, black folks to look past the category line? Like how would they fix that? Like, I just love music. So I'm exploring anyway. So I'm kind of looking everywhere. So. I would come across it, I'm sure, just because I was just looking and just kind of didn't just sit on one radio station. But even in the Bay Area, until later on, we kind of had stations that played everything. Like we heard everything, like growing up, it'd be like, you know, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, The Carpenters, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, just whatever, The Eagles, you would just be all on the same radio station and you just kind of heard everything. And so everybody just kind of liked the, the same thing. And then later on, they did kind of start separating it out. So yeah, you made a good point. Radio, I think like rhythmic stations, I think, used to fill that void where they played a bit of everything. Because when I think back to being like four and five years old, a lot of the rhythmic stations back home in Washington State, you know, they played the popular R&B, hip hop, pop songs. And then out of nowhere, they played like, I just think back to how popular house music was at that time. And so they could play some of the, the hardest to shoot them up, kill them up music. And then the next song would be a Crystal Waters track. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. all right. It all flowed together. I think what ended up happening, again, like with marketing, is just, I think a lot of people just don't know a lot of these artists are out. Most of these artists, you have to actually go and search for to really find their material because we're not, everything's not dropped off in our lap anymore. That's been the downside of the industry, in my opinion, for the last 15 plus years is, if somebody's not already established and doesn't have a fan base, it's hard to know about them. And again, with the getting rid of pretty much the music networks as far as being outlets for exposure, and then again, the, the, all the radio stations now operate on syndicated playlists and they all have the same one if they're under iHeart. And even Radio One, as great as they are, sometimes they kind of have their own kind of setup with what they're gonna play as far as the stations that they own. But yeah, now that you have like syndicated playlists, and even in the streaming world, they have the curated playlist that they try to put out, which is supposed to kind of introduce us to new acts. Even that's kind of bought out. It's yeah. not like you just jump in there. You know, you still yeah. have connections and pool to get into those. And then this is a very quick microwavable era we're in where 
so, you just notice this trend now where songs that come out and then a week later nobody cares anymore even though everybody was just partying to it like the week before at this i just think everything's just changed so much so i think with audiences i never realized how so many artists have big fan bases until i saw them live because you know sometimes you'll see somebody's coming to town and you go in and they're like i didn't notice many people listen to them okay right. and again i think that's because that's that demographic of people that go and have to just dig and find their own artists that you know connect with them because you're not getting it from radio you're not getting it from the award shows um because mm-hmm. like the soul train awards i think as great as they are um or i won't even go after them i'll go after bet i think the bet awards you know there's a certain kind of artist they're going to let on there that's it so there's black artists that make other types of music but they're never going to be on the bet award stage at all if it doesn't fit the mold of you know what is supposed to be presentable so you either need to be an rb artist or you're gonna have to be hip-hop even as a pop artist is not really a thing. Like I think Jason Derulo performed at the BET Awards one time and it was just awkward because it was kind of yeah. like, I don't know what to do with him. What's he doing here? So, right. you know, that's kind of where we are. Yeah, that's interesting. And then also what you said about like going to the concerts and really seeing the fan base. I've noticed that too. And I also noticed people that was really big and then go to a show and it's not well attended. And I'm thinking like, how can this be? This person sold all this, these albums, their known name recognition, all this kind of stuff. And then, and I don't know if it's like the promoters or what, but it's certain people I saw and I was just kind of like, it wasn't me personally, but I felt kind of offended. Like we have this, this place out here called Yoshi's. We go see live music out in Oakland. And I might see somebody like, like I see Bilal there and they'll do pretty good and stuff considering, but it's not like a large venue. Like he, he deserves to be somewhere bigger than, than Yoshi's. I might see, I've seen people like Rashawn Patterson. I've seen Ndambi. I saw her there and she just tore the place up and it was just like, and it's these small venues. And I'm thinking like, where's all the people I've seen? She used to be with Arrested Development, Dion Ferris. Oh, I like her. Oh yeah, my Robert. goodness. That, man, she still has it. She still has it. She still had them pikes. So it's interesting you mentioned her because I do feel like her song I know was oh. one of the songs that broke through. Cause it seems like even the most diehard RB stations were playing that. I remember hearing that song everywhere. And um, hopeless. Cause I just remember because I just as soon as you heard that guitar riff on I, yeah. I know, I'm like, and, and again, in the conversation of soulful, it's clearly yeah. a rock song, but the delivery right. is so that's what makes it so good because the song structure i think what separates it from a typical rock song is there's an element that i just feel like soul music and r&b music just has this very warm approach to it and you can yeah. just kind of i can't explain it but you just right. there's something that hits that you just know so even hearing that song with all the guitars and everything it's just so different from around that time i think that was the grunge era when that dropped or maybe, maybe a little bit later but um yeah compared to some of the uh, atlantis morissette would have been out around the same time yes very different sounds, both yeah. great, great music, but you just, there's something different. Same instrument. So. Right. And you appreciate it because it is different and you love it for that. It's not because it reminds you of something else, but it just catches you in a certain kind of way. And it might be the riff that, that grabs you, but it's the soulfulness that keeps you there. It's kind of like gives it more weight because if anybody else was singing on it any other kind of way, it wouldn't be quite the same. So it's that, I guess it's that, uh, that balance of, of having that combination of sound and soul with it. But yeah, it's very interesting. And then also the thing about that kind of puzzles me, it kind of doesn't kind of does, but you know, people like soul music when it comes to like, you know, Adele. And if they like that so much, then where's Jasmine Sullivan? Since you like soul music so much. The white artists have always had the luxury to do whatever they wanted. 
I think because going back to what I said at the very beginning where the labels, if it's not ear candy, they're not pushing it. Yeah. They will give leniency to white artists, especially if they're doing the blue eyed soul, because uh, they can pull in the adult contemporary audiences. Like, so the white folks that, that miss a Celine Dion, who's no yeah. longer music or um, some of the great ones that came out of her era, or even like when Elton John was still popular in the nineties, like they want that void filled. So somebody like an Adele can give them that because she can give you the, the I think black people tend to like Adele because of the texture of her voice and her yes. post. I think white people like her because she's safe enough where she's not too, she's not too R&B-ish. Because when you think about like R&B acts that are able to appease the adult contemporary audiences that would have eaten up a Celine Dion because they loved her so much, only a select amount of black artists got that kind of favor. So I think Toni Braxton temporarily had it for the Secrets era. And then as soon as she dropped the heat and, and went back contemporary R&B, they were like, all right, we're done with her. You know, so let her go. Shantae Moore never got to really blow up to pull them in, but I think if, she would have had the exposure. She could have been able to win over that audience. Um, Brian McKnight, I think, had that audience at one point in time. Like back at one, he definitely had it. Who else? John Legend gets it right now. I mean, he he kind of he's a little bit of everything at the moment, so he has that luxury to kind of pull that audience. But again, Adele, Sam Smith, th those are the power players in that game. And so the labels will let white artists have the leans to experiment and step outside the box. Black artists don't get that if you're not because you know, like think about all the unsung episodes where the artist finally gets to write their own album and then it goes where the label decided they didn't like it and the album was shelved or they didn't push it or it debuted at number 112. So we just said, that's it. And then I got dropped. As opposed to, you know, if a white, like Adele, the last album was what, 2015? That was like yes. years ago. She gets the graceful period of six years to really create. Only person we have that got that kind of leeway is Sade. She's the only one that can leave for that long. And then Maxwell kind of too, that can leave for years and come back on the same step that they left on. And I think Maxwell can get it because Maxwell's core audience is still black. Like, I think his core audience is black. I, in my opinion, I think white audiences can be fickle. Um, they, they jump ship really quick. I, I just don't, other than the heavy metal hair bands of the 80s, I don't see a loyalty to artists coming from a lot of, like, white demographics. Well, once we all connect with them, they move on. But I think even, I think black audiences tend to be very loyal when they can be it, it, like yeah. that's why I think like an Alexander O'Neill can still tour or SOS band could, or Frankie Beverly who pretty much at this point he no longer has his voice but he can still sell out an arena because we will go and have a good time no matter what he sound like just because um there's a loyalty that is there uh, I just think black artists don't get the backing to maintain it that's kind of what separates them from like a lot of white artists that have bigger push and so I think again just that adult contemporary audience in my opinion is the current audience that buys music as far as they're still purchasing projects just huge amounts like Adele selling a million copies I'm sure half of that is the adult contemporary audience not even just the regular pop audiences but the soccer moms that are in their 50s and 60s that missed the Celine Dion years you know they love somebody like an Adele so she's safe enough Jasmine Sullivan to them one radio's not giving her any exposure so they don't know who she is but she's not she's not easy on the ears for them She's a little too soulful for them. They, 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 I don't like when they use the term soul because it's so selective. It was like when Christina Aguilera came out with, when she came out, they were, oh, she's so soulful. And I was like, okay, she's nice. You know, I think she does a lot of riffing and running that's unnecessary. But for them, it was like, oh, she's, they put her in that bucket. And so, yeah, they ate her up too for a minute. But so don't, you don't think that she does. Okay, okay. So, <laughs> so Christina Aguilera, you don't consider her like an artist, like, okay. I'm not saying I'm not saying Whitney Houston. I'm not saying Whitney Houston, but you know, 
Whitney Houston, Celine Dion. She's not my cup of tea, never kind of was. But, you know, uh-huh. so when it comes to those kind of singers, you wouldn't put Christina Aguilera up there? I consider her a power vocalist. Yeah, definitely with that. But I think with each album, she changed her sound every album. So yes. the first album is very, very pop, even though she had I Turn To You, the remake, and it was a very adult contemporary song. Yeah. I think it's a really great um, vocal delivery on that one. The next album, that's honestly, she goes a lot more R&B, hip hop influence. Yeah. That's what she considers her soulful project. And I think that to an extent it can fall in that lane. And then the album after that is back to the basics where she kind of pays homage to you know, almost like the big band sounds with everything and the Etta Jameses and all that. And then she shifted and went Lady Gaga-ish with like the Bionic Project. And then mm-hmm. what's after that? Flotus was the next one, which is, that's kind of when people stop paying attention. And then the one that just came out, I think two years ago was very R&B hip hop influenced. So she's kind of shifted. I think her vocal delivery kind of, people put her in like the soul box. I never saw her as that. I just think she was a, a strong singer, but I, yeah. her, I don't know, I could be wrong. I, you, could be, you could be right too. And then also a thing that made her kind of seem like the credit of quote unquote soul was being, you know, being next to Britney Spears yeah, when this is what you did. And then you got her doing this like, oh, oh, yeah, the other one. I understand the other one is more popular, but that one right there. Yeah, yeah, that that one. Especially as a kid, I did rock with Christina, especially even the first era, because, again, she was in that bubblegum era. But because that genie in a bottle stuff, not that song, but <laughs> the, the what was it? The, I turn to you and the, the what yeah. a girl wants and the come yeah. on over, baby. Like, because she could sing, the delivery on those ear candy bubblegum songs, it was a perfect combination. Right, but, right, it, right. but it's something that's only encapsulated in that specific era. That only worked for 1999, 2000. You couldn't do that by 2001 because industry has shifted and they went a little bit more R&B influence. So then come 2002, now she's getting dirty. So I was like, yeah, okay. Right, right. That was very interesting. And you got Red Man and Meth in, in the in yeah. video like, and rapping I on it. I was like, okay, this is different. But again, yeah. Celine Dion audience that would have taken to her after she dropped I Turn to You is yeah. no longer interested. And that's also, she had that song with Ricky Martin, the, the Nobody Wants to Be Lonely, which again is another one of those adult contemporary, yeah. easy listening for the, the school administrator at the suburban school to play in the office type of stuff. So, Good point. But, okay, so I like that point that you made because it made me think of how... I even kind of felt a little bit, and I love her, but Fantasia. So her claim to fame was that summertime. And then, you know, her album comes out and she's saying, shout out to all the baby mamas. Even I was kind of like, this is not where I came from. I think that album is interesting though, because I think she gives you a bit of everything. Ain't gonna beg you and the free yourself, the truth is. And then again, that adult contemporary, she has the year off on my mind, the who is that? Who's originally sang that? Uh, Rod Stewart. That's his song. You're always on my mind. Was that? Rod I, I remember. I remember uh, Willie Nelson. Maybe it's Willie Nelson. It's one of them. But yeah. she had that remake on there with Pool, and then the I Believe song, which is, and then the summertime. Yeah. Then yeah, I think yeah. the Baby Mama song is just. It, she still wants to pull in the younger R and B hip hop audience. Yeah, and, yeah. I just, I just say it threw me off when I first heard it, but I understood because she's being a she's a young mother herself, so she's just kind of telling her story. And I started thinking like, yeah, she's a young kid, and she's just kind of making the music that she wants to do. And just because she could flex and do these big songs, you know, she kind of want to do the the songs that she want to hear herself, and that and that's fine because I like that first album. But I was kind of thrown because I thought I was gonna get something else. But I hear what you're saying because I'm sure the people who thought they're gonna get a whole album of Summertime, all those crowds from American Idol who was just waiting to buy that album, like you said, heard heard that whole album, just kind of like, eh, we're gonna switch this right on off. I feel like her audience shifted 
in the middle of that album era. So the initial interest is there, because I know the I Believe song was a huge hit on adult contemporary radio. And I think by the time she came out with Truth Is, because I remember mm -hmm. she weirded it on like the AMAs and performed it. Truth Is, as great as it is, I don't think is for that adult contemporary audience because it's too R&B for their, for their liking. And so I think they lost interest and then the R&B fans kind of came in and said, we got her, don't worry, y'all, we'll take her. Because I think even when you get to the next album, she, when she drops Hood Boy, I was like, yeah, she totally said, I'm just going to do what I want to do. So, all right, at least it has When I See You, but... And I love that video. It's so sweet. When I See You song, that just put a smile on my face every time I've been thinking of that song. That's one of my favorite songs by her. It's just something about that, the way she's singing it. She's, it's simple, and she's just singing all over that thing. I like that Tom Joyner. I like that more than the studio version. She performed it on uh, the Tom Joyner Morning Show in the, uh, what is it, the Red Velvet Lounge, he has. It's on YouTube. She got I'll look that up. Dress. That's like the best performance of that song ever. Okay. That one knocks. I got that on my playlist in the car. I'll be in the full concert. Um, okay. I got to check that out. But yeah, I love her. And I saw her live. Like, it felt like church. Like, I had a moment watching that performance. I think with Asia, her gift is, she, in my opinion, almost like how an Aretha can sing anything. She could drop a respect or she could give you a whole album full of jazz standards. Yeah. Like, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, as simple as that music is. Way left field and who's zooming who. So she can kind of fit into any realm. I think Fantasia yeah. that too. And I think that's why they let her kind of experiment with a bunch of sounds. Cause when you have the voice, you can do a whole bunch of stuff. So. Yeah. yeah. But I thought it was kind of interesting, but it just still just trips me out. The fact that they'll take a hood, Justin Timberlake, but then that same audience won't seem to see Usher, even though Usher was there the whole time. That's just embedded in our culture as a country. Uh, and I think that goes back to the era of race records and all of that, kind of like the Pat Boone verse, Little Richard. Right. Same song, but we'd rather see our own do it, even if they don't do it as well. So sure. But even like Tina Marie, who yeah. you think white audiences would take to her, they never really took to her. She's always had a, a core R&B Black audience. And I think, again, because of that association, that Celine Dion, I don't know why I keep using Celine, but for some reason, that's the face of adult contemporary to me for some reason. All right, the Michael Bolton audience. Um, oh, goodness. <laughs> they just, they weren't going to pull in uh, a Tina, even though she's singing her heart out and doing her stuff. For them, it's all right. You, you're a little too close to that. So, you know, we'll, we'll stick with somebody else. Yeah. Can you get people like Hawthorne? They'll keep them in R&B. They'll keep like Remy Strand. He came out back in the day. They would kind of keep him on the side. That is funny how that is. Robin Thicke, he crossed over with Blurred Lines. He's interesting, too, because in my opinion, back in the day, I almost would put him in that Tina Marie box, but I shifted that. Because remember, he was, pop audiences weren't playing him. Her lines is when he finally, but he pulled in a pop audience, though, too. It was, yeah. And then they jumped ship after Blurred Lines, and then he said, all right, I'm, I'm back, y'all. <laughs> I'm back. And what trips me out is that, you know, and like I say, it must, might be the presentation and stuff, but a lot of times for like, like New Edition doing okay, even though they should have been doing great, and all these boy bands coming up, you know, after the fact and, you know, they're blowing up, but then it's being like written by full force. So there's like black hands, art, voice mm -hmm. and everything behind that. And as long as it's not the face, <laughs> it's okay. But if it's the same producers, you know, one would be in and the other one would be just like, you know. Don Garrett and Teddy Riley working with all the K-pop groups. I was like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, but, but they saw that with Neptune's messing with Justin Timberlake. The same thing with Dr. Dre and Eminem. I wouldn't have a beef with it if it wasn't at the expense of 
actual artists that come from that experience. That's my only beef. Like, yeah. it seems like once you do get an Eminem or a Justin or, you know, whoever else, they jump straight to the top of everything and they get the, the full machine behind them and the accolades and the records and stadiums and everything. Uh, and it's like, sometimes it's like they didn't even have to climb. Like Eminem is interesting because once he got on, he was on. It wasn't yeah. even like, like uh, look at Jay-Z's trajectory. He's not really my favorite rapper, but yeah. he's huge now. Well, at this point he's almost legacy act, but during his peak, I don't think Jay-Z became Jay-Z until probably close to maybe the blueprint. And he had yeah. been out for years, but he kind of had to climb to get there. Somebody like an Eminem came out swinging from day one. Cause you, just like you said earlier with hip hop, the largest consumer audiences are white kids in the suburbs. So now they have somebody that reflects their experience. And, you know, he grew up in the trailer park, but he's from eight mile. Perfect. This is us. And so, you know, massive records sold quickly. The only time I've seen another hip hop artist blow up so quickly, which this isn't even a jab, but I'd say like Will Smith's Big Willie style, but that's just because he was a safe artist for people's kids. So, you know, yeah. he sells little poppies, which by the way, it is a nice album. It's a little cheesy, but it's actually really nice for that moment. Yeah, he came off safe enough. So, you know, people were comfortable. You know, it's a rap album without a parental advisory sticker. Right. And then got his association with movies and stuff too. It was just kind of like the whole wave of things. It's kind of like, I want everything that's him. So mm -hmm. it's kind of easier to take in. It's just always interesting because even when you have Usher and Usher kind of ushered in Justin Bieber and just surpassed him. And it's just like, Justin wasn't necessarily better than, than the teacher. It wasn't like the student was necessarily better than the teacher, but it is what it right. is. Usher blew up out of circumstance. So when you look at the My Way album, it was not pushed to pop audiences. It was pushed to us, but we yeah. just ate it up so quick and he started to blow up and I said okay maybe we might have something here with him and then okay they put a bit more backing into 8701 and so we're going to really push him and then of course come confessions it's a movement same thing with like a lot of I can't think of too many black artists that got the, the push from day one like even Destiny's Child with the writings on the wall how big that became it initially was not getting a push like a TLC was getting for fan mail because at that point TLC's established but you know they're like okay here's this other y'all y'all might remember them from no 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 here's the, the little album that they came out with and then it sells nine million copies so, okay so that you notice they go a lot more pop with Survivor a lot of our big projects blew up by circumstance and then mainstream audiences catch on later on to the point because even I think even like a Janet and the third album Control as well the initial plan wasn't to really throw her out there she kind of just you get that hook, that street cred or black audiences kind of eat her up and like, okay, she actually, okay, actually we can do something with her. And then, okay, let's put more behind her. Cause I just, you look at so many artists or black artists that had huge albums. Whitney might be one of the few that I can think of where they had a goal when they put her out. They knew what they were yeah. doing, like the whole strategy. Like Whitney's one, I don't even want to put Michael there cause Michael already had a 20 year head start. I don't know, maybe Alicia Keys. For sure. You could tell that that was being pushed on you. The Whitney stuff, you kind of found out later how Clive had been kind of had his eye on her for a while and they made him wait a little longer for her to get a little older. And But Alicia Keys, it was almost like I didn't appreciate her because I felt like she was being pushed. I was like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's almost too much. It's like you're a familiar stranger. Like, I know what you're supposed to be, and I hear you. You got something there, but yeah, I know what that is, but the presentation, mm. I think she won over her critics with the second album, The Diary. Yes. I remember when she first came out, again, that MTV Buzzworthy, and by the end of that summer, she was everywhere. I was like, dang, she blew up. I was like, okay. And she came yeah. down here to the Bay to do that song with Dwayne Wiggins and the Tonys. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The diary uh, song, yeah. She came for the bay for that sauce because even though the song was good and catchy and stuff, that first album and stuff, it just felt to me. I didn't know she was gonna blow up like that. I was yeah. like, dang. I mean, I still love, I still love the music, but I think it was the second album is what pulled me in. Where I was like, okay, I'm a fan for real now. I did appreciate her performances and stuff she had during the first era, but again, yeah, it was kind of unexpected. But you could tell that there was a push to really put her out there. Because again, she had come out around the same time as India Ari. I remember they both were out at the same time. Yeah, I love her too. India did blow up, but again, I think uh, she blew up out of circumstance. I think you can see the difference in how they were both put out. But she went on the Oprah show and they finally gave her some time to really blow up. That's what it seems like. We say she blew up. When I, circumstance, I mean, like they're put out there. Nobody knows how they're going to do. Hardcore R&B audiences really take on and start supporting, and then the label sees the numbers are doing really good. So like Keisha Cole, because uh, remember, like she came out with about three or four singles before she really jumped off. So she yeah. was on the barbershop soundtrack with that song with the Luther sample. She had the I Changed My Mind. She had I Just Want it To Be Over. Around the time she dropped I Should Have Cheated is when her numbers started to pick up because she used to go on the radio shows complaining that nobody was buying her album. And so you get to that summer roll five. I should have cheated. Is out. Yeah. They put some money behind the single love, and then boom, it's you know she's out there. So I think sometimes the labels are are nervous. Or even another example. This is an, actually no. I was gonna say Paula Abdul, but that's not a good example because I think there was push behind her. It's just it took a minute for her to catch on. But yeah, so I guess when I say out of circumstance, it just means that they didn't initially come in the door swinging with the backing. It was the audiences supported, and then the label finally played catch up and said, "All right, we'll push them." Okay, so when I think of like soul albums, especially like more recent ones and recent times, like Leela James and Josh Stone, I like the idea of Leela James. I love her voice. But if I was listening to that album, like song for song, say for their first album or their first two albums, because Leela don't have as many albums as Josh, but it almost comes off as if like Josh Stone has a more I don't know if it's fair to say, but a more authentic soul sounding album, if that makes sense, than Leela James. And it could be because they have different writers and I just might like somebody's writing or musical Josh. sound better. Josh got Elsa Deep for that, that one album. So I know. Uh, out of Oakland. Yes. Soul music, I think there's multiple tiers that they approach. I, I've always seen Leela in a different space. I, I think I hear what you're saying. I look at soul on a spectrum. You have like a Jill Scott Erica in one bubble, kind of. You you have like a D'Angelo Max. Well, even those two are almost different in their own kind of spectrums. And then you have other artists like a Bilal that or Rashawn Patterson. Leela James, I put her up with somebody like, dang, who do I put her up with? Because then you also have like the Heather Headleys and Vivian Greens. Like they're different, but they all fall under that category of soul. I think Leela James, because she has such a heavy pocket that she sings in, I don't know if it's, it makes it harder for them to figure out what to do with her. But I always think of her song um, called Fall For You, I think is the song. That song, when I think of Leela James, but she has a bunch of other stuff. Cause then even Angie Stone, it's like, well, wait, they're all in these different categories, which makes soul so interesting because there's not a one size fits all formula. I think Joss has, I just think she had some really good backing. And I think because she knew that she was a white woman coming into this field, she had to come correct. So she worked really hard to make sure she did. But I will say, even though I liked her albums better, cause I remember them kind of being around the same time and maybe my expectation was different. Maybe I thought that Leela's stuff, not her singing, but her music and stuff and the song types and stuff would be closer to what uh, Joss had. But I will say, and it takes me a minute to get over it, but when I first hear Joss singing, 
it sounds more like she is singing her interpretation of how a black person would sing it. You know, it doesn't sound necessarily authentic to me, but she has really good songs and I like how she's singing on them, but it's nothing compared to like a Leela James where that's just, you know, you can spot it a mile away. I think for me, when it comes to like, I guess the blue eyes soul acts, Amy Winehouse might be the only person I felt- I was about to say that. Like she, her music can connect with black audiences, yes. but I've never felt she was trying to, it's just what she, because yes. even her delivery is very different. Like songs like Best Friends, I'm like, this is different, okay. When I first heard her, I thought it was an old black woman. I heard a song that she had, our local radio station, KPFA, they were playing it at the beginning of a, of a show. I'm like, boy, that voice is kind of haunting, you know? It kind of reminded me how Macy Gray was. It's like, I didn't know how to take her voice. I liked it, like I'm hearing it, but I couldn't hear it right. It's almost kind of like how, well, I wear glasses, but if I have my glasses off and somebody was walking towards me, I see them, but the information, what they look like, doesn't make sense until they get close enough. And I'll be like, oh, okay, I get it. So with Macy Gray, that voice was just haunting. I'm like, what is this? I didn't know if I liked it or not. It was just like, it was just so different and and it sounded good. So I'm like, well, she don't sound like she has a good singing voice, but she sings beautifully. She just have her way of doing it. And so it took me a minute to take it in. And once I did, I just fell in love with it. But I, I like kind of different sounding voices. Amy Winehouse, it was the same things. And I thought it was like some old black woman. And, and when I seen who she was, I'm like, wow, that tripped me out. But um. To me, she's very authentic sounding. It's funny that you mentioned her, because I was going to mention her, like for somebody like her to be as big as she is, where is the black version of her? And if she is out there, she should be getting the same attention, love, respect, and all the rest of that stuff. Like I appreciate Amy Whitehouse and I love her music. I, I was a big, big fan of hers and felt slighted when she passed away, you know, selfishly thinking about all the music I wasn't going to get from her because she had just did so much with that Fade to Black album. Like that's the album I listened to during a time where where my daughter was, was being born and me and my lady, we would just listen to that album all the time, even to the point of when I had a show and we were in the gallery and we were just playing it in the gallery. And I remember just, just walking around, listening to that music and you know, getting ready for my daughter to be born. So I just have a connection to her and her music. And yeah, it was just, it was just special. Best Friends was my song. I used to play that over and over. It's just her and a guitar. Going back to like what you're saying, like a, somebody that's a black parallel to that. I don't know if there's one for her, but I always felt like in regards to Adele, I always thought Rebecca Ferguson from the UK would have blown up more. I don't know if you heard about her tone and texture. Is, yeah. And she never blew up for, for some reason, because I was like, she has an amazing voice. So I just knew she'd be one to, to look for. But I'd even say the same for even Emily Sande, who is a little bit yeah. more pop. Um, I thought she'd have a, a bigger career as well. But I don't know, it's interesting. Yeah, I just don't, you know, and then even with those people you're saying, they're from different countries. And I'm like, where is ours here? Is there a soul album or artist that you dig that you think that people would enjoy if they heard them? Who's somebody you think is being slept on that you would you recommend? I don't consider him soul. He's more of like an alternative rapper slash singer. I like the guy Duckworth. I think he produces his own music. He kind of raps, sings. He does a little bit of everything. He's a little bit older. I think we're the same age. I like what he does. It's very out of the box. I don't consider it a tradition. I don't consider him a traditional R&B singer or a rapper. He just does whatever he feels like doing. So I like the energy he has. I think he's very underrated. I like, there's an act, they're more contemporary R&B, Van Jess. Um, that's like, I think they're sisters. I like those two. They have some really nice, interesting music. Gene Noble, I think people are sleeping on. He has this song called Matching Tattoos. I think that's a, a nice, 
very smooth kind of R&B soulful thing. It's more contemporary R&B, but I think it's still a really good track. Actually, a lot of the older seasoned acts, I just kind of go back and rediscover what they've been doing. That's cool too, because to me, those are just as important to know and to go back to. Some reason, and mind you, this wasn't even an underrated album. I've been playing the mess out of Sons of Soul for like the last year. Tony, 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 that album. Because I mean, it was out when I was a kid, so I was so used to hearing it. But I randomly went on a road trip in July, and I was like, let me play this. I ain't heard this in a while. And I was like, wait a minute. You, you start hearing stuff you didn't remember hearing the first time. So I'm like, all right. She's actually gospel, but I think her stuff is very soulful. The singer Lexi, like L-E-X-I. Yeah. She has a song called Abide, which is, it's like a nice song. I was like, this is gospel? And I was like, okay. I had almost put that in a different playlist. Um, most people know Lucky Day. I like his stuff. I do like his voice a lot. I think the album of his that catches me is the Painted album. That's from 2019. I still actually buy all the Rafael Sadiq albums too. Like even the newer, it was a little different, but I still liked it. That Something Keeps Calling has a really good replay value. Other than that, everything else I'm listening to is already seasoned artists a throwback so i'm just rediscovering albums i've been playing a lot of rufus and shaka khan it's funny we start off with one topic but i figured we we're gonna go all over the place which is a good thing which i really appreciate thank you for coming through always enjoy speaking with you and like i said hearing your insight and stuff and kind of see what your thoughts are about music and things like that did you have any words you'd like to leave with yeah i have nothing this was good i think we covered so much just thanks for having me always oh, good to kind of hear everybody's perspective I feel like every time you have a music conversation, people will bring up an artist you totally forgot about. So yeah, it's always a good way to kind of get reintroduced to stuff too, so. Would you like to give out your information so people can find you? So you can literally search up Calvin Michaels on anything and something will probably pop up. So the YouTube channel is under Calvin Michaels. That's a conversation of music, politics, life in general, a bunch of different things. I have a podcast called Comedically Hardheaded. That's on all of the streaming platforms. So Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, um, Google Play, then my actual music as well, um, my two albums and the up and coming one will be, it's on all the streaming sites as well. So, and also iTunes, Amazon. So Calvin Michaels under everything is where you can find me. Same for social media as well. Um, you can just type in Calvin Michaels, I'll pop up or maybe give me a beat, uh, G-I-M-M-I-E-A-B-E-A-T. But I guess the main hub to find me on everything is probably YouTube. I pretty much put everything on there. Um, and then whatever people are more interested in, they can kind of branch off and go to either the streaming sites for the music or for the podcast or anything else I have. All right. So, man, we look forward to talking to you soon. Until next time, peace. All right. See you later. Take care. <laughs>